We are studying the book of Romans. It's a big book with a lot of material. The more I study it, the more I see why people love the book so much and why they say so many wonderful things about it. All roads lead to Rome. Well, there's a lot of information in the book of Romans that lead to the rest of the New Testament. We were introducing the book last week. We'll continue to do that with a very real hope of getting to the text, but uh, no promises made. We were giving you six things that are happening. We were going to get to seven, so we'll jump in where we were. I'll relay them very quickly. What is happening in the first century? Jesus has come and gone back to heaven, and thus Old Testament prophecy about him has been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit has come as promised and prophesied by the prophet Joel, Joel 2, 28 to 32. Number three, the church has been established. The days of these kings, all of those prophecies about the church, in fact, Isaiah 2, Joel 2, Daniel 2, and Micah 4, 2, all fulfilled in Acts 2. The church has been established. What about the nation of the Jews? Nothing has changed. We talked about that. As a nation, as a whole, they have not been changed. They are very much steeped in Judaism, along with the Pharisees, who are the leaders of the day, if you will, and their traditions. It's important to note, when you hear our Lord interacting with the Pharisees and the gospel accounts, these are not necessarily discussions about the validity of the law. These are often discussions about their perversion of the law. And so you shouldn't think that the Lord is having any issue at all with the law. He's not. He's taking issue with their corruption of it. Mark chapter 7 is a very good illustration of that, the washing of hands, cups and platters. And Jesus says, you have with your traditions laid aside the commandments of God. That's the real issue. The nation as a whole is unchanged and unfazed by what they would call a sect. You and I would call it the Lord's church. Number five, Judaizers are in the church. We talked about that last week. We'll remember that as we progress through the book of Romans. Some of them believed. Also appreciate the fact that sometimes that's all the New Testament will say about a person becoming a Christian. He believed. That's the totality of it. That stands for he obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, Acts 15, 1 to 5. We were on this point. Jesus' teaching about the nation is coming to pass. This is about where we were. We looked at Matthew 10, 34 to 39. They are going to kill the son. They're going to do that. And the question was, what will God do to them? He will destroy that nation, and he will give the kingdom to others. If you're reading the book of Matthew, it would be good to read chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24, at the very least, together. 25 would be a good read, too, because those parables are about preparation the virgins, and then the three men with the talents. This is about preparation for the day's coming. It brings us to the point where we were, which is right about here. We will begin then in Matthew 21 and verse 33. We read this, so we won't read it again, but this is where we stopped last week. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner, and so we read this, and this is where we ended, 45, 46, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. 
When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. We're going to pause there. We'll return to that very quickly. And let me just suggest as we strive to set this up, you and I often refer in breaking down the Bible into dispensations. And so we say patriarchy from Adam to Moses. And I say we say that. The Bible actually says that. Romans chapter 5 and verse 14, from Adam to Moses, sin reigned, Paul will say. And then we move from Moses to Christ, from Sinai to the cross would be a good way to say that because the law is going to be given at Sinai and that law is going to continue until the death of our Lord. Uh, the new law can't go into effect until the death of the testator. And so Jesus needs to die for that new covenant to go into effect. Appreciate that Christ lived under the Old Testament. And you would hear him say to people, go to the priest. He would heal the leper, go to the priest. They would ask him, do you give? Peter, go and get the fish and there's a coin in there, pay the tax. Jesus lived under that covenant, and he's going to fulfill it, but his law cannot go into effect until he dies. So once he dies, he's buried, he's risen, he ascends, and then we refer to the next phase as the Christian dispensation, and we talk about that in terms of Pentecost to the end of the world. I would urge this, too, is also proper. This is the way Jesus talked about it. He is going to institute a new covenant, Matthew 26, 26 to 28, and 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 24. That won't end until he comes. In fact, that's Paul's language. Then cometh the end, when he shall put down all rule and turn everything over to the Father. And so that's the idea. I don't mean to suggest anything about that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's right, that's proper. What I am saying is this part. Within the last part, within the, what we call the Christian dispensation, as we read it in the New Testament, there is something else happening within that. And it is the end of Judaism, the last days of Judaism. Judaism is winding down, coming to an end, as Christianity is beginning, and that's going to be the seventh of our points. There is a beginning and an end. To that end, not every time you see the word end in the New Testament, it is a reference to the end of the world. Not every time. Sometimes the end is a reference to the end of Judaism. Let me give you an example. Look in Matthew 24. be good to read all of these passages together. 21, 2, 3, 4, 5. 24, though, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to the point, up to the point out of the temple buildings to him. He said to them, do you not see all these things? Notice verse number one, they're seeing the temple buildings. Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which shall not be thrown down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen 
and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the, if you have the King James, it will say world. If you have a newer rendering, it will say age. What's the end of your, or the world? What's the end of the age? And you'll notice they said, your coming. Here is a coming of Jesus and an end. But it's not his second coming. It's not that. It's not the end of time and the end of the world. If we were just to keep reading, you will see that borne out. So let's keep reading. And Jesus answered and said to them, see, it, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Note these pronouns. You, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these are merely the beginning of birth pains. What will happen when this begins? Verse number 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. I know the tendency is when we see the word you and we're talking about God's people, it is immediately comfortable to make it us. But he's not talking to us. He is talking to immediately the apostles. By extension, I suppose the first century saints. But he's not talking to you and I 2,000 years removed from now. He's not. Well, how do you know that? Because we're going to keep reading. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, we will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, the end of what? Well, not the end of the world, but there's coming an end. How do you know it's not the end of the world? What will we do? We'll keep reading. Verse number 15. Therefore, when you, what's the next word in your Bible? Therefore, when you see, they're going to see something that triggers for them the end of whatever he's talking about. What will they see? Verse number 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand one of the many reasons, and there could be many, many reasons given we have to read the Old Testament. The reason we have to understand the Old Testament is because there's so many references to the Old Testament in the New Testament. This is one of those examples. And so they would have understood that. When you see the abomination of desolation in uh, Luke's account, I believe he will say, when you see the army surrounding the city, 
when you see that, when you see either the Romans surrounding Jerusalem or Gentiles in the temple, depending on who you're reading, but when you see it, know that the end is nigh. Now, when you see that, what should you do if you're there in the first century and you see that and you're in Jerusalem, what should you do? Let's keep reading. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out that are in their house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. In those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Where will you be fleeing from? You will be fleeing from Jerusalem. And pray that you're not pregnant, harder to flee, harder to travel. Pray that it's not in winter, harder to flee, harder to travel. Pray that it's not on a Sabbath, gates will likely be closed. Pray none of these things will impede you. Why? For verse 21 says, For then will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, show great signs and wonder source to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go. Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe. For this, for just as the lightning comes from the east, flashes even to the west, note the phrase, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Not every reference to the end is a reference to the end of the world, and not every reference to coming is the second coming of our Lord. In this case, our Lord will be coming in judgment on Jerusalem. The same way God has once in the Old Testament come through Babylon or through the Assyrians. That's God coming. God called the Babylonians. They came from the north. They judged God's people. God came in judgment. God is going to come and destroy Jerusalem. Christ is coming in judgment. It's not a reference to the end of the world it's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem this is happening within this Christian dispensation and so when you're reading the New Testament yes we have a time of starting and moving that will not end until the end of the world and we also have a time of something ending and something starting and that ending is also called an end and a coming of our Lord within that framework. How do you know? Well, we'll keep reading. Verse 27, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. This is all language used to describe the fall of kingdoms and empires in the Old Testament, the sun being darkened, stars falling from the sky. You'll also read that language in the Revelation and in the prophets. That's what's being described. 
after the tribulation of those days. So those days are going to begin and those days are going to end. There's going to be a beginning of the tribulation. There's going to be an ending of the tribulation. And this verse says, after those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. You'll want to remember that when you're reading Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Something is going to be shaken and something cannot be shaken. It's the eternal kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. Judaism can be shaken, and it will. One more time, it will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with great power and great glory. He will send forth his angels the great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the sky to the other. Now, learn the parable from the frig tree, which is the branch has already become tender, put forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, one more reason we know that cannot be the end of all things because there are no signs for the second coming of our Lord. There will be nothing we can point to. There will be nothing that can be seen. There will be no indications. He will say it later. No man knows the day or the time when the Lord comes. This coming, they would know. When you see the abomination of desolations, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, when you see all of these things, know that it's near. What's it like? It's like 32. Learn the parable from the, when its branch is ready, become tender, put forth its leaves. You know that summer is nigh. So you too, in the same manner, when you see all these things, recognize he's near right at the door. Verse 34, truly I say to you, when is this going to occur? This generation will not pass until all these things take place. When are these events going to take place? Within that generation. The end of Judaism is happening when we're reading the New Testament. You could read about this also in Mark's account, Mark 13, 14 to 30, as well as Luke's account, I believe it's Luke 21. There is a beginning, number seven, and an end. The beginning of the church, the end, last days of Judaism. In a real sense then, the church will rise and be redeemed while Judaism will die and ultimately be destroyed. This nation will be destroyed, and that's Christ's lamentation for them. Go back to chapter 23, and this is actually what led into that discussion. Now, I should say that from about 2436 on, is a reference, I believe, to the Lord's second coming. When you start reading from 36 and 24, you can immediately see the shift. Verse 36 says, but, but of that day and of that hour, no one knows. That's the language for the Lord's return. The second coming where everything will end, that's the language used for that. Nobody knows the day, nobody knows the hour. 
there are no signs, nothing to see for the Lord's second coming. But as you can see in those first 30 some odd verses, 35 verses, there's clearly a lot of signs and they were told, look for these things. Back in chapter 23, Jesus sees this before it happens. And so Jesus is still on the earth talking at this point then, it's future because the Lord is still actually alive in Matthew 23. So these events haven't happened yet. He's prophesying what will happen after he dies, is buried, and he ascends, and sometime after that. So it's future while he's saying it, but I think the gospel accounts were probably written in the 60s. So by the time these things are being read, it's much closer to a reality for the people getting the letters and actually reading the gospel accounts by the time they're reading them. It's future when the Lord is saying it. And so in verse 37 down to verse 39, which would really lead us into chapter 24, Jesus' lamentation is, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, notice what he says, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jews had been filling up the measure of God's wrath and it was going to be poured out upon them at last. Christ told them what they were going to do. He told the apostles what would happen to them, and then he told them what God would do because of it. Go back a little further in the chapter 23, and notice what he says at the end of that rebuke to the Pharisees. Now, bear in mind that parable that we talked about was back just a chapter ago. It was 2133, and we notice how that parable ended with them saying they realized he's speaking about us. They understood that. So then in chapter 23, he rebukes them so harshly for their hypocrisy, and you get near the end of that. Notice verse 34 of chapter 23. To those Pharisees, Christ says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. I'm sending you that. Well, to whom is he going to send that? I'm going to send that to you. I'm going to send that to Jerusalem. I'm going to send that to the Jews. What's he going to send? Prophets. We're going to read about prophets in the book of Acts going forward. What message are they going to take? They're going to take the message of the gospel. I'm going to send them to you. I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you wise men. I'm going to send you scribes. The Bible is always intended to be written. They're going to write it down. I'm going to send scribes, he says. But notice what will happen. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge. Where? In your synagogues. You will persecute from city 
the city. Does that sound familiar when you're reading the book of Acts? It doesn't take long. By Acts 4, they're being called into a council. By Acts 4, they're being threatened. By Acts 5, they're being beaten. By Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death. By whom? The Jews. By Acts 8, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew, is wreaking havoc on the church. Acts 9, he has letters and he's persecuting. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. I'm sending them to you, and this is what you're going to do. And the reason is given in verse 35, so that upon you may fall all the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Then the lamentation, 37, 38, 39, and then chapter 24, as they look at the temple and not one stone is going to be left upon another, and all of these things are going to happen upon this generation. The Jews will fill up their measure. The church is going to experience a great tribulation, and then the end will come. I need to tell you, in case you don't know, there will be some disagreement about some of the things that I say relative to these matters. You should understand that. Good brethren, faithful brethren, disagree on some of these matters. Um, and I, I don't want you to think I've cornered the market on all truth. I'm just telling you that that's very, very real. Uh, as it relates to the book of Revelation, I think these things have bearing. Not everybody does. But I think this is the language you'll be reading in the Revelation. I think that's what you'll be reading. Uh, there is going to be a great tribulation. I don't think there are two great tribulations. I think there's one great tribulation. In fact, this tribulation is going to be referred to as like nothing ever in the world. So that's going to happen. And then you'll read Revelation 1, 9, and John will say, I am your brother and fellow companion in the tribulation. Well, I don't think John is in another tribulation. It's just me. Not everybody agrees with that, but I'm telling you what I think. I think this same language here you'll be reading over there. And I think that's because Jerusalem coupled with Rome, is ultimately in the discussion of what's happening in the Revelation. I just think you should know that. I don't think there's two great tribulations separated by 25 years or so. I think it's just one, but that's just me. Revelation 7:14. they're coming out of the great tribulation. I didn't give you much to ask for questions last week. Do you have any this week? I'll give you a shot uh, if you want to say anything, and I'll do my best to keep going if you don't. then we'll keep going. So, with these things said, I, I, I was trying to establish the background and the setup. Let me say one more thing, because I've said a lot about the destruction of Jerusalem. I do not want you to think that I believe in the doctrine of AD 70-ism. I do not. I don't think you have to believe that doctrine to believe these things. That doctrine is, is false. That's not, not true. The Lord did not come literally in AD 70, but there is a coming of the Lord in judgment in AD 70. I don't know, are you familiar with the AD 70 doctrine? You are not. I won't muddy it up for you tonight. 
Paul's letters then to the Romans, the Galatians, the Colossians, the Ephesians, and Philippians, when you're reading Paul's letters, these seven things that we talked about tonight, they are spattered throughout Paul's writings. He deals with these things. He explains the gospel. He refutes the Jewish mindset. He strengthens the Jew, the Gentile saints. He points to victory in Jesus and the glory of the church. As we study the book of Romans, I'm going to keep urging you to keep these things in your minds and let them set the framework for what we are reading in the book of Romans. Keep the book in the first century, Jew and Gentile justification with all that is going on in the first century as the context. The Judaizers are attempting to bring saints into bondage. Paul is teaching the gospel for how everyone is going to be saved. And so ultimately, that's what the book is about. How is a man just before God? Who needs the answer to that question? Everybody does. The Jews need the answer to that question. The Gentiles need the answer to those questions. Not every Jew in the first century is uh, insincere. There are devout Jews. They're still going to need this answer because the, the, the law of Moses can no longer be that which brings you the God. You need the gospel. We read uh, 1 Corinthians 3 or 2 Corinthians 3. The, when the law is read, there's a veil over the heart. They're missing the Lord in their continual dedication to the law. Those people need it. The Judaizers inside the church bothering God's people, they need it. The Gentiles being told you can't be saved unless you're circumcised, they need the answer. The answer is not through the law, through works. That's not the answer. The answer is faith, ultimately by grace through faith. That's how God is going to justify it. And Paul will argue this again in the books of Galatians, Romans, uh, 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 Ephesians, Colossians. Words that you'll read in Galatians are freedom, bondage, sons of God. You'll read those words in the book of Romans. In the book of Ephesians, you'll read sealed, first fruits, and spirit, things you'll read in the book of Romans. The book of Colossians, you'll read flesh and spirit and works and faith, things you'll read in the book of Romans. In the book of Hebrews, sacrifice, savior, kingdom, faith, law, you'll read all of those words in that book. The key words to the book of Romans, I'm going to urge, these are obvious, but Christ, God, Spirit, those are, are there. Gospel is one of the key words. Justification, righteousness, and I believe the word called is exceedingly important in the book. That was Christ, God, Spirit, gospel, justification, righteousness, called. I believe those are key words. There are pairs of words that are key as well. You're going to read grace and faith, works and law. These will be two different things set aside each other. Flesh and spirit, sin and death, Jew and Gentile. You could really draw a line and put one on either side, and that's going to be the discussion. Let's look at some key verses in the book, and we will continue. Ultimately, we're getting close. Romans chapter 1, 
verse number five. This, I think, is one of the key verses in the book. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Note why he's received that. To bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Now, those first four verses are full of information, and we'll unpack them. But you'll notice verse 5. It's to this end, through whom we received grace and apostleship. Why did we receive those? To bring about obedience of faith. Obviously, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. For whom is this? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is not a misstatement in our Bibles. The Jew is first. First. It doesn't mean only. It means first. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It will inevitably be the same message for both, but by way of order, the Jew came first. And, and that's recognized in Scripture and understood and stated. They have every advantage. Paul will say that as well. Unfortunately, many of them will miss out on the gospel, and that will seemingly, or seem to, I think it does, break Paul's heart. Chapter 3 and verse number 9. Another verse that I think critical, chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, as we will see, is actually kind of a summation of 1 and 2. And in chapter 3, Paul says, What then are we, Jews, better than they, Gentiles? Are we better than they? His conclusion, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, what is the issue? They are all under sin. Humanity needs the gospel. The Jew does, the Gentile does. And this word all encompasses both groups. That's the first century. Keep it right there. The Jew and the Gentile, all are under sin. Slide down to verse 23, and that's the same thought. It's the one probably more, more commonly known, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When the Bible tells you uh, in verse 9, the all is Jews and Greeks, then in verse 23, the all is Jews and Greeks. Sometimes when you're reading that, you can just read it and then project. You can just, I'm reading it in 2023, and therefore, all have sinned. The whole world has sinned. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. Even if that were true, that's not what Paul wrote. He didn't write that with the intention of you and I reading verse 23 and thinking 2,000 years further than what he wrote. Because just a few verses earlier, he just said, we've already proved all. All who, Paul? The Jew and the Gentile. Where did you prove that? He proved that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He proved the Gentiles are under sin and in need of Jesus. In chapter 2, he'll prove the Jews are under sin and in need of Jesus. And in chapter 3, he'll say, we've already proven it. We've already proven all are under sin. Well, that's chapter 1, and that's chapter 2. Even if you say, well, Eric, isn't it true today that all are under sin and in need of the gospel? Every accountable person who has the mental ability to know 
Yes, if they have sinned, they need the God. Absolutely. That's, that's going to be true all, all ways. But I don't want you to do this to the Bible. I, do, I don't want you to read verse 23, jump 2,000 years, and because a fact is true, read the verse as if it said that. It did not say that. Am I making any sense here, or am I just talking to myself? In my mind, it makes great sense. It really is clear inside of my mind. Outside, I don't know what it sounds like. Yes, ma'am. I wondered if it made sense. <laughs> that's, that's true. I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're reading the Bible, treat it as if you're not immediately including yourself in what you're reading. Treat it as a document that you are approaching to find out what its author meant in his letter and allow him to assign meaning within the framework of his letter. D does that make any sense? So if Paul wants to write about justification and how a person is justified, and he writes that in the first century with those seven things that we've already talked about, and he's writing it to a group in Rome about these Judaizers and about these Gentiles and about coming to them. And he says in chapter 1, Gentiles are under sin. In chapter 2, Jews are under sin. And in chapter 3, he says, all of them are under sin. I'm saying that's the meaning. Now, once we know that, if you want to pivot and then say, well, Eric, who's under sin in 2023? I would say every person who is accountable to God and has sinned is under sin, um, and they need the gospel. That's true. I'm just trying to say, just like Jesus said, when you see these things, you and I are never going to see those things. You and I are never going to be in Matthew 24, seeing the temple of the city of Jerusalem surrounded with armies. We're never going to see that. What would we take from Matthew 24 then by way of application in light of that? We would go to chapter 25 and even in chapter 24 where Jesus says, be ready. Be ready for what? Because in 36, he says, you don't know the hour or the time. Is there coming a day of judgment? Yes. Are there any signs for it? No. What should I do? Be ready. And so I would say, well, yes, let's, let's learn what it says first and then make application after we learn it. But I wouldn't want to say to you that Paul meant when he wrote through inspiration 323 that 2,000 years from the time of his writing, all would be all mankind living at that moment are under sin. I don't know if I made it clearer or worse. I, I don't know at this point. Let's dive back in. I hope that helped. I'm sorry. If it didn't, we can talk in private. We were talking about key verses. Chapter 9, verse 24. I think this is key. 9, 24. Uh, we're going to talk about this, especially as it relates to 8. Even us 
whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. I think that passage is really critical to understanding eight, quite honestly. I think that one is, is very important. 30 and 31, that section there in nine, also very important. I think it's going to be helpful by way of explanation. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? And this is going to be critical because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The approach that the Jews are taking to God, it's what's going to cause them to miss God. They have a works-based, fleshly, uh, I think, one brother said, a contractual kind of approach to God. Our good works are going to justify us. We're going to keep the law in such a way that inevitably you will owe us salvation by our works. Paul says they're seeking justification by works. They're going to miss out on justification. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Works are not going to justify. Faith is. And this will sound like um, a contradiction of our concept of faith because what we generally say about faith is that faith works, which is also true. So you're going to have to hold thoughts in your mind that seem contradictory and, and some of them will be difficult, but Paul is not always, he's talking about the mindset of the Pharisee, of the Jew, who wants to work his way to God's righteousness by his deeds, by his efforts. He can't be justified by that. He's going to be justified by God's grace and his faith in God. Now, that faith in God, yes, it will obey. But that's not Paul's point. His point is this right here, apart from faith, works apart from faith will not justify. Got it? Okay. Couple other passages and we'll be almost ready. I want you to look at chapter 7 and verse 1 because Paul does this, I think, when we get to an outline, we'll talk about this passage and another. So, well, while we're there, let me just give you the outline now. This is, this is, Eric's outline, and I, I can read you some others. I copied several different people's outlines, and there some of them are very involved. But I think Paul is talking to the Jew and the Gentile in the first six chapters. I think he's talking to both the Jew and the Gentile in the first six chapters. I think in chapter 7, over into chapter—let me find the exact cutoff point— from chapter 7, I'm going to say, to chapter 11 and verse number 12, I think he's talking to the Jews. And I think that's critical to understand as we get into 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. He's talking to the Jews. Now, the reason I say that is chapter 7 and verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, 
Who are you talking to, Paul? For I am speaking to those who know the law. I think he's talking to the Jews here. I want to talk to the Jews. I think he does that in 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Now, the reason I say that, because if you go over to 11, you'll notice I stopped at verse 12. So, what happens in verse 13 of chapter 11? In verse 13, Paul says, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my office. I think some renderers might say now. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So I think he's been talking to the Jews for a section. I think he then pivots and starts talking to the Gentiles. I think he talks to the Gentiles from 11, 13 through 12, through uh, all the way over maybe the end of 11, or I'd say probably um, at least through 11. Uh, you could make an argument, I think, from 12 to 16 that he's talking again to the Jews and the Gentiles as Christians because it's so practical, and, and, and so he used the word brethren quite a bit. And so I, I'll, I'll accept that. But I, I think from there on, he's down at least to the end of that chapter, He's talking to the Gentile brethren. Uh, that's to my mind. Now, again, not everybody would, would say the same. Paul is unique in answering these things. He, ha he is the right person for the job. In fact, I'm sure this is one of the many reasons he was chosen. He is a Jew. He is a former Pharisee. He is an apostle. He is a Christian. And he is an apostle to the Gentiles. One more passage, and that is 16. Chapter 16, 25 to 27. Notice how the book ends. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God and has been made known to all the nations, you should see that as Gentiles, to obedience of faith. You read that in chapter 1 and verse number 5. You're reading it again in chapter 16 and verse 27. When an apostle writes something in chapter 1 and he writes it in chapter 16, the contents between the two is about those two things. It is about bringing the Gentiles to obedience of faith. And that is the bookend for the contents that we're going to read about in the book. That gets us to uh, the top of the hour. I will tell you this, and those who teach, I know you know, you study and you have far more much more than you can than share. So we're going to skip ahead, and uh, we're going to try to get to the text uh, next week uh, as best we can.